Welcome to the Best Ever You Show with your host, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, helping you live your life to the fullest. How? Real people, including celebrities, real advice, real places, products, and businesses, real life stories. It's all right here for you with this radio show, printed magazine, websites, community, and more. Remember to visit us online, too, at besteveryou.com. And now here's your host, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining the Best Ever You Show. We're about to go over 3 million downloads, and that's all because of you guys sharing and listening and really welcoming our guests. And I love it when we have guests that have a book um, and all sorts of amazing um, things that go with it. Actually, our guest today has two books, Going Public and a new one called Mastering Money. Um, My guest is Norm Champ. Hello, Norm. How are you today? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I always love having you as a guest because you're so brilliant and so personable, so real easy to talk to. And um, everybody, when I say this, don't get scared off. He's he's, uh, a partner in the investment funds group of Kirkland and Ellis and the former director of the Division of Investment Management at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, Like I said, he's the author of Going Public and then his new book. Norm, is your book actually out yet or is it in pre-order? It's Mastering Money. It it is. So it it is available for order on Amazon. So it's, they okay, have perfect. books. Got it. Okay. And um, everybody can listen at, uh, visit normchamp.com for more information. But also, you're, are you still teaching at Harvard? I am. Yep. So I, I teach a it. class in private funds investment management law there as well. Yep. Yep. All right. Anything else new to the to the bio other than the book? No, <laughs> I think – I think the book's enough. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Very exciting. Well, welcome back. Yeah, I'm, uh, this one's a little bit different than the first one. The, the first book was about um, going public and like your your adventures in, inside the SEC and all those things. Um, you talked a little bit about modernization and the Edgar system, and um, we have a favorite topic in common, the lottery. So we'll we'll kind of if you want to bring that book up feel free to, but I thought we would spend some time right off the bat talking about your new book. Does that work? That sounds great. All right. So the new book, Mastering Money, do you have um, an audience in mind for this book? Is there a certain segment of the population that you're trying to reach or is it for everyone? Well, I think there are ideas in the book that are for everyone around individual financial decisions and helping improve financial literacy for all, you know, sort of everyone in the population. However, it is a back to basics um, financial planning book. So I'm not urging you to borrow money and buy real estate or, you know, buy my tapes to, you know, learn how to invest or whatever. This is really back to some very core principles of financial planning that can help people in our current society uh, build their own personal balance sheet uh, and make sure that they have the financial security they need for themselves and their family. And I would say that it is primarily aimed at newer entrants to the workforce. So let's call it, you know, 18 to 35 kind of zone or people who are re-entering the workforce. So we're in this boom right now and unemployment is way down and 
workforce participation is way up, and so we have a lot of people back in the workforce. And I, I think it potentially is most valuable for those kind of entering the workforce or re-entering the workforce. So the the book, it looks to me anyway, that the book is broken down into three parts: um, curbing spending, increasing your income, and saving. Yep. Is that correct? Exactly. Yep. Do you so, want to walk us through? Yep. So it's it's really you know I, I as I talk about in the book, I'm afraid that these three areas have become almost like the lost knowledge that we all used to have, and I think was very prevalent knowledge and sort of accepted uh, in society. But because none of this is taught in schools and our society, unfortunately, is more about urging spending than it is about building your own net worth, um, a lot of what I call the sort of lost truths um, are, are in fact obscure now. And so really trying to bring those basic truths back. So as you point out, really three simple steps. So first and foremost, is reducing outflow. So we live in a society that asks you to spend all the time, right? We're all bombarded with ads and products designed for us and credit card offers and, you know, online shopping. And we are a consumer society. I'm not saying we're ever going to reverse that. (laughs) But um, you need to consume in a way that is right for you, you know. And, And unfortunately, lots of people in our society are consuming more than they can afford, uh, and that is leading them into debt and leading them into, you know, a lot of the issues that you hear about. People don't have $400 on hand for a car repair and, you know, those kinds of things. And so really part one is how to get control on spending, um, resist some of the temptations. We've got lots of concrete ideas in the book, you know, very actionable concrete ideas to reduce spending, uh, one of which is we all are carrying around these, you know, four-inch long phones, the, you know, screens, and um, those phones, it's, it's amazing the number of automatic subscriptions and things that people are signed up to. The same people who say they don't have $400 for a car repair I guarantee you are paying, you know, maybe 100 bucks a month or more in subscriptions on their phone, and they've generally most people have lost track of those subscriptions. So there are some very concrete, actionable items on how to curb spending, uh, and that's got to be the first step because you've got to get the outflow under control. Then part two is really, hey, all right, we, if we can get the outflow under control, what about inflow? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, and particularly here at this moment, right, we've got unemployment at record low levels, um, and that's great for people. And so, you know, a lot of the second part is about taking advantage of that, getting out there and getting a job. You know, we run through a lot of the benefits of having a job and what that can mean for increasing inflow. Probably most importantly, uh, retirement plans, 401ks, and things that are available to you if you have earned income, 401ks or IRAs if your employer doesn't have a plan. Uh, but those plans, the ability to save uh, and do so directly from your income, and in the case of 401ks and traditional IRAs, achieve deductions to your income, thus lowering your taxes, uh, and enjoying tax-free growth essentially for younger people, you know, for a long, long time, those are incredibly powerful levers towards getting people back to financial health. Uh, Mm -hmm. So part two is really jobs, the benefits thereof, and starting to get income in excess of expenses because 
once you get your income above expenses and start to get your debt, then get your debt paid off, uh, then you move to the last chapter, the last section, which is, <clears throat> okay, I got my spending down, I got my income up, I got my debt paid off, what now? And so in part three, we talk about the simple ways to save, um, ways to begin investing. And so much of part three is really derived from the government experience. So like you said, the first book's really a personal book about navigating through the government after being in the private sector. Um, this, this book is really more my passion project, trying to share some of these long lost money secrets uh, with everyone. And so much of that is derived from, in fact, being at the SEC, seeing that the number one fraud that the SEC prosecutes is doesn't make headlines, doesn't you know really come to people's attention. But the number one fraud prosecuted there is what we call affinity fraud. So uh, that has to do with there's a nice fellow in your church group or your community group or wherever, and he says, oh, I'll manage your money for you. And of course, unfortunately, sometimes um, those people are preying on that affinity group and they are stealing the money. And of course, Bernie Madoff mm-hmm. preyed on the Jewish community. And, um, you know, the history of these affinity frauds is very long. But why is that? Why are people willing to kind of turn over their money to someone in a trusted group? Well, the answer is there's a lot of fear about, okay, I do have some savings now. I've got some money. What do I do? And so really the theme of part three is some very simple uh, investments, very safe you know, formats of investments. Um, not saying safe that they're definitely going to make money, but safe, right. you know, highly regulated by the government. And, um, you know, because again, you would never, if you have $100,000, if you follow all this stuff and you end up with $100,000 to put to work, you don't want to hand it to someone at your community group or your, uh, you know, other affinity group and have them walk away with it, right? There's some very simple ways to put that money to work uh, to help you grow your balance sheet over the long term. And so, so much of that part three is really based on the the kind of terrible experiences I saw people have uh, when I was in the government uh, from getting ripped off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The 2008 also. Oh, boy. Yep. And, and, you know, I think it does reflect there's just we have, I mean, all these topics in our society right now. We don't teach any of this. You don't really hear it discussed, right? I mean, I think right. that even here's an incredible uh, fact. Just two generations ago, so close to 50 years ago, you could walk into the U.S. post office and have a postal savings book where you deposited money and you got a savings book and you got interest on your savings. Now, I would not advocate returning to the post office running savings because they're obviously having problems just running themselves. But just think about what that represents, right? Just two generations ago, people would go to a public place like that, a government building, and save money. There is nothing like that now. We've just that's just not publicized, right? We don't have that feeling of saving and where I'm going to put my money to work. So uh, the book is really an attempt to to bring back some of those principles and help people get their yeah. net worth better. So that, and of course, the ultimate result of all that is that if you have, if you take care of your own balance sheet and what we we call net worth warriors in the book, if you take care of your own balance sheet and build your own personal net worth 
even if we have a crisis, you know, you're going to be fine because you have an emergency fund that I recommend. You have a balance sheet. You've got some assets. Um, it's it's really also a personal survival kit for the next crisis. There will be a recession someday. Um, we have not repealed the business cycle, and I want people to be ready when that comes. Are there different rules for mastering money depending on your age? And I'm going to just give a little bit of an example here. Like our oldest son um, now is in the workforce. We have three in college and one in the workforce. And my advice to him was, yes, sign up for that 401k, put as much as you can in, and they'll match it. That kind of thing. Do you agree with that? Bad advice, good advice? It can be bad advice if you try (laughs) it. No, no, it's it's the best advice at all. I mean, what's what's so difficult is that – right, so 401k – is the easiest way to start to build your personal balance sheet. Um, it comes straight out of your pay. Uh, it's a deduction to your pay, you know, so it's it, less taxes on your pay. Um, it goes into an account. You can program that so it goes right in, so you don't even see it, right? You, you know, you're just living. You have get your expenses under control and live on what you're getting after your 401k deduction. But it's going right into an account. And if you're a young person like your son starting out in the workforce. You're talking about a you know 30, 40, 50 year investment horizon, which mm-hmm. is incredible. And you will, you know, unless the world ends, you're going to make money over that horizon, right? Even if there are ups and downs, and you're, all your earnings are tax free over that horizon. So the compounding factor of that is so strong. So exact right advice. And what all the studies show is that voluntary participation in this incredible benefit is I think runs around 60, 50, 60%. Whereas if you make it the default that people are in and they have to opt out, then the rates go up to 80, 90% you know, participation. So totally the right advice. When you're young, you have a long investment horizon and you should put that money in there and just consider it. I think one of the barriers is, I've seen it with um, young folks entering the workforce, is they think of that as retirement money and oh, well, then I won't be able to get it and so forth. It needs to be thought of as building your balance sheet, your net worth. And, okay, it's in a retirement account. If you really had to get it out, you could do so. If you had to borrow against it, you could do so. Those are not recommended, but you're building your balance sheet. It's Don't think of it as you know money you can't get a hold of. I think that's one of the barriers with young folks. So now your different age points, I think that the answer there is there's, it's never too late. It is certainly better to start early. And that's why I mentioned the book is aimed at kind of 18 to 35. And then people, you know, reentering the workforce earlier is better, but it's never too late. Uh, And so it's important if someone is reentering the workforce, let's say they've had a break because of the crisis and they've been out or they've been, you know, starting a family or doing something else. um, When you come back in, it's important to get these same habits going again, uh, even if it's later on. And and there are some, you know, benefits over 50, you get to uh, actually add a little extra to your 401k that is more than people who are younger than that. So there are some makeups or catch-up provisions. Um, so you want to, I think this advice is helpful at all ages. Um, you know, the principles are the same, uh, but it certainly is the best if people can start early. We have a question for you. Um, this is from somebody who's listening who is much older, um, and they've had a health crisis and hang on, I'm going to kind of read here, but they're basically saying that they have depleted all of their savings from a health crisis, and they're 65 and older. Now what? <laughs> that was the question. 
Yep. So, yeah. yep, no, it's these are unfortunately, um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we've had a lot of ups and downs in America around health insurance and, and all these things, and I, I sympathize with um, someone who's had a health issue that's that's cost, um, uh, you know, some of the some of the some or all of the savings. I think I would go back to kind of the first part of the book, which is: is there any way to cut expenses? Um, so, and understanding that can be difficult. But for instance, uh, you know, is, are, have the kids left? You know, and you have a larger place to live than you need. Um, could you, is it possible to move to a lower cost jurisdiction? You know, there are ways to try. So I think one thing to think about is in that unfortunate situation, are there ways to get outflow down uh, to, to start to try to rebuild savings? Presumably there's some retirement, hopefully retirement income or social security and those kinds of things on the inflow side. And that's a mm-hmm. fixed income and makes things harder, obviously. But um, I think thinking about how to try to cut some of the outflow uh, start to rebuild. Uh, it is hard, and you know, these, it's it's all. It, it, but the same principles apply of trying to get a handle on those things and seeing if there's a way to start get you know to have the income exceed expenses uh, and see if we can rebuild an emergency fund at least uh, to have yeah. some you know money if something goes wrong. So, praying you're going to win the lottery isn't going to work. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, I I uh, finished the. Obviously, the last chapter of going public. So, going public is the story of entering the government, which is a little bit like Alice going down the, uh, you know, in through the looking glass. Uh, it's a, it's a different world, and and you know, uh, the other book was a lot of stories about that. But of course, at the end of that book, I kind of previewed this book, and, and it was really you know those ideas and thinking about it. And I think that on the sort of point of cutting down on the outflow. It's not just that our governments are not teaching folks about um, financial literacy and and, uh, helping them prepare uh, for this, but we actually have government working against us. So um, governments have worked out that lotteries are a basically easy way to raise taxes. You don't have to raise the tax rate. You simply put a lottery out there. People play it, and the government takes the lion's share of the revenues. Um, in almost every jurisdiction in America, it always starts out with the money's going to be for education or this, that, and the other thing. But money's fungible, and it's effectively lotteries that become part of everybody's state budgets. Um, uh, the lottery, you know, I, I think I the free, I think I quote an article in the book. You know, your odds of winning one of these big jackpots is quite similar to being hit by an asteroid coming from outer space, uh, you know, and um, yep. unfortunately, and the statistics show that low-income Americans uh, spend about 10% of their income on the lottery. So these are people that are not being taxed. So if you're in the brackets of low-income, you know, folks in America, there is no income tax. Uh, and unfortunately, the governments have stepped in with this lottery, which is a tax. And not only that, it's a regressive tax. So um, meaning that if, you know, a a wealthy person throws a dollar in when the uh, jackpot's at $400 million, that doesn't mean anything to that wealthy person. But if a low-income person throws in a dollar, it may be a much more significant uh, part of their income, and particularly if they play regularly. So the lottery is the state working against us, um, working against building net worth. And if there was one thing from this show that I would ask people uh, is if you want to build your net worth, you want to have the emergency fund available, 
uh, stop playing the lottery. Uh, you know, this it is. You know, as, as someone, as I also talk about in the book, you know, there are things called sort of excise taxes, sin taxes, right? So cigarettes, alcohol, those things are taxed have more heavily. Uh, you know, just theoretically to address the social ills around those things. And as I say in the book, well, you know. That's all great, but they don't market Massachusetts menthols or, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, cigarettes sponsored by the state, right? Um, but the lottery is nothing different, right? That is a right. – the lottery is bad for your financial health, and it's marketed by the state, uh, and it's advertised. Can anyone escape? Could you walk three blocks in New York City and not see an ad for the lottery? So um, if there's one tip to take away, stop playing the lottery. Put that money in your own pocket. You earned it. Um, put it into a safe, you know, regulated investment and start to build your own net worth, not give it to the state. Got it. What is, um, in Chapter 4 of your book, it's titled The Mortgage Trap. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so this, you know, I went to the SEC right after the crisis and had a chance to be exposed to lots of the kind of cleaning up the crisis, trying to figure out what happened and so forth. And I think it's important for all Americans to understand that the decision, the decision to purchase a house is a financial decision just like any other. So same as not playing the lottery, same as putting money into savings. It's a straight financial decision. Now, we have wrapped home ownership into this is the way to build your net worth. We have wrapped ownership home ownership into, you know, this is going to be the best investment you ever make, all these things. If you go and talk to all the folks that got foreclosed on after the financial crisis, they will not tell you that home ownership was a path to wealth for them. Home ownership is a financial decision. We, in this society, we spend lots of time encouraging people to buy homes as if it's an independent good. It can be a good financial decision, but I emphasize the word can. Uh, and so what I'm really urging in this chapter is Please, 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 and analyze buying a home the same way you would any other investment. Um, you know, a lot of emotion gets in the way, and you know, if you don't think you're going to stay in somewhere for five years or more, between closing costs and everything else, it may not make sense to buy a home. If you are at a point in your life where not sure where your career is headed, or you may move to a different city, as I say in the book, you know, for love or for anything else. Um, you know, it's, you're better off renting in those circumstances because the friction cost of buying and selling a home, you're going to come out behind. Uh, and so it's, it's everything in that chapter are concrete tips for people to evaluate a home purchase as the financial decision it is, not the sort of romanticized, oh, I'm going to, you know, get a home and that's going to be my path to uh, net worth. It may or may not be, and we need people to look at that clear-eyed, put aside the marketing, put aside the whole, you know, we have a big mortgage industry in this country and a big housing industry, and there's a lot of pressure uh, to buy. It's similar to the consumer point, right? There's a lot of things telling you to buy a home. Again, that might be a good decision, but it might not be. And so that chapter is meant to equip people with some tools to think about whether it's the right thing to do or not. So I love chapter 10, and I was hoping before we go you could tell us a little bit about that because I can remember being my 19, 20-year-old self and getting my first job and someone saying, well, here's a 401K and not having a clue what that was. So I had to teach myself, especially at that time being in charge of like implementing Edgar everywhere, I'm like learning 
all of this financial stuff in my 19s and my 19, 20 year old self. And I do remember there never being any kind of class like that in high school. And I don't think there is in my kids. We've sat down with the kids and said, this is 401k, this is this, this is that. Um, it's not there. Why? And it, <laughs> why? It's, it's, it's not. And it's a shame. And, you know, really what I'm advocating in chapter 10. So frankly, Given the problems in our education system, um, I don't think it's going to be there either. It would be great if it was, and I'm available for any school that wants me to come in or libraries or anybody. I'm happy to come in and talk about these principles. I, I don't think it's likely to be there. And so what I'm really trying to advocate in Chapter 10 is those exact kind of conversations that you've had with your kids, right? The the best thing is to learn these lessons and then try to pass them down. Um, now, again, I'd be wonderful if it became parts of curriculum and all those things, but I'm not sure that's the way uh, to, to think it's yeah. going to happen given the strain on education now. We need so many fundamentals uh, that you know people don't have. And so I'm trying to advocate for teaching your kids. Uh, I personally am going to get out there basically to – any place that'll have me. So if there's anyone, church groups listening or community groups or, uh, you know, anything, any place where there's more than, you know, five or 10 people getting together, I'm happy to come and talk about this and, and really see, you know, this, this is for me, personal passion project. I, I'm mm-hmm. not a, you know, not a financial advisor. I'm not, you know, I'm not selling you something. I don't, I don't have anything for sale. I, I just, I saw, the impacts of the crisis. I saw what this lack of financial literacy meant uh, for people who were trying to play by the rules, trying to do the right thing. Uh, and so I want to convey that knowledge uh, to every audience I can find. Uh, so I so much appreciate being on this show and just, just try to get it out of my head and into, try to get it out of my head into other people's hands uh, and then hope that they get those lessons and, and work with them and see how they can succeed. And then bring it down the generations, you know, pay it forward, bring it down to the next generation and be open with your kids about it. There's a very real hesitancy that people have about talking about money. It's, it's a tough subject. Um, and so I'm really advocating in chapter 10 that people break through that as you've done, you know, talk to the kids, lay these things out, mm-hmm. try to get the principles out there so that people are equipped as they move into the workforce and, and hopefully start families and do all the wonderful yeah. things that life has to offer. As you were talking, I was thinking of like Norm Champ's Money Academy, like Khan Academy on YouTube. <laughs> that would, that would, there you'd, you know, that the kids are glued to YouTube. You could probably put out like a five part video series, um, you know, or three part or whatever it is to educate, you know, kids are glued to YouTube. That's where to find and kids. As we were talking earlier, Snapchat and YouTube. There you go. Yep, and and we've been doing all. I have um I have a great social media, uh, great social You're media awesome. firm that's been putting out all sorts of you know sort of yep. phrases from the book and you know trying to get those out there. And uh, no, no, I'm um I'm happy to get out to any audience. I this is uh, this is something I believe in. Yeah, yeah well, I, we can hear it in in your voice and and everything. Do you um do you have a favorite part of the book that I haven't mentioned? It's a really good book. It's easy to read too. I love the way you write and speak. You're you're easy to listen to and easy to follow, which is half half the battle, right? <laughs> you well, thank, yeah. thanks so much. Um, you know, I think um, probably my favorite would be um, you know kind of chapter eight about investing tax free. I think that 
again, there's some very simple things. You know, we were talking about the retirement accounts. So those are tremendous because they your money's in there and it's compounding without tax. There's ways to do that in your after-tax accounts as well. So if you just start a securities account at, you know, uh, at one of the mutual fund houses, um, in your taxable accounts, so the non-retirement accounts, uh, it's important to buy investments that are tax-favored. So stocks in our country are tax-favored because their gains on them are taxed at a lower rate and only when you sell them. Uh, and for instance, municipal bonds are, are not taxed, right? So it's important also to consider what the right investments are for your taxable accounts, not not the uh, tax-free accounts. And so that chapter is really trying to draw that line and, and help people build their accounts uh, so that the investments in them are performing the best uh, that they possibly can. Uh, so that's probably my favorite just because those are some insights that, as you say, those are some insights that took me a while to figure out. So <laughs> I'm happy to pass them on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Um, is, there, is there anything else you want to talk about before we go? Because I think I'm going to respect the 30-minute time, time frame because it's it's uh, easy to listen to and um, easy to download, and we can, you know, tell people 30 minutes of their time to change their life financially, <laughs> and uh, I would listen to that personally for sure. Um, so yeah, no, just, uh, no, just thanks so much for, you know, having me. I really admire the work you're doing, and I think, um, you. you know, you if, anyone, if anyone out there is looking for, a speaker to come and talk about these topics. I'm I'm happy to do so for you know all for free. So um, look well, forward nice. to sharing all this with with anyone I can. I gotta wait, 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 wait. I have one more question. So hang on. Sure. Um, we have what is? Do you have an? Hold on. I gotta read it right. Do you have an ideal government policy that will help build wealth? Hmm. Uh, like a self-directed IRA. That was the well, question. I mean, I think if 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 I if I were in charge of a government <laughs> entity, maybe a, a state, let's let's say maybe a state to start out with. Uh, if I, you know, I think my my I, I think that clearly the policy that I would try first is to get rid of these regressive taxes. So it's not just the lottery, which is heavily advertised and is a regressive tax, but the sales tax is a regressive tax. So I live here in New York. We have the highest sales tax in America, right? It's eight and a half or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and that's a regressive tax, right? If if I go and buy, you know, a $1 soda uh, and a person down on their luck, you know, goes and buys a $1 soda, it's a different impact. You know, it's the same amount of tax mm -hmm. and it shouldn't be, right? Most of our tax system is progressive. People who make more are taxed more and people who make less are taxed less. Sales taxes, lotteries, um, excise taxes—those things all hit everyone uh, the same, and that you know the same percentage, and that means it hurts lower-income Americans more. So, my first policy would be to get rid of the regressive taxes, so that um, people are not being treated differently, uh, you know, and having that different impact on them of these regressive taxes. And that would—I mean—just think of folks who are struggling and going to the store and buying food. Um, right. If we did that, we would get no more sales tax on that food, and, and that would obviously be a big benefit for people. So that would be my first step. Uh, but no one has uh, elected me to uh, <laughs> to any <Yeah. laughs> uh, office. But but if I ever get there, that would be step one. Is that still a goal? <laughs> I hear that's still a goal, Norm. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. <laughs> uh, run. 
All right. Thank you for being with me, Norm, as always. I hope you come back again. And um, I look, I hope you'll write maybe some articles for besteveryou.com because we love, we love your participation. And I, with your permission, I'd like to also broadcast this over on compliance four. Is that okay? Of course. Over on, uh, yeah. Um, all right. So, um, yeah, I, we'll just respect the time frame. It's short. I, I never like ending shows, so <laughs> you can help me out with that. But um, no, I'll say, just to thank you again for having me, and yeah, uh, look you. forward to talking to you the next time. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. That was Norm Champ. Go to his website, please. It's normchamp.com. And um, I guess we're going to vote Norm someday. Uh, But in the meantime, (laughs) his books are um, Going Public and Mastering Money, with Mastering Money being the new one. And um, you can buy his books wherever books are sold. They're both up on Amazon. And um, I will make sure I have the links to his books available And we thank you very much, Norm. Thanks for being here, and thank you all for listening. Take care, and have a great day. Thank you, Norm. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Best Ever You Show. Want more? Visit us at besteveryou.com. Be your best and keep it real. Confident, successful, caring, and beautiful every day with Best Ever You. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.